Thought Leadership Studio. You're listening to Thought Leadership Studio, the podcast that helps you master high-level positive mass influence to create distinctive business niches, captivate an audience, grow your following, and change the game by changing the frame with strategic thought leadership. Thought Leadership Studio. Welcome back to Thought Leadership Studio. I'm your host, Chris McNeil, strategic thought leadership coach and consultant. And this is episode 61, Unpacking Biases in Building Bridges, Dr. Pornima Luthra's Approach to Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. What this episode will do for you is help you understand diversity beyond the surface level. Explore with Dr. Luthra how diversity encompasses not just visible traits, but also a rich tapestry of backgrounds, experiences, in thoughts, challenging the narrow perceptions of diversity in organization. Embrace the concept of diversifying diversity and delve into Pornima's holistic approach to diversity, equity, and inclusion, understanding the intersectionality of various identity aspects and their impact in the workplace and society. Help you navigate personal biases and privilege and gain insights on recognizing and addressing individual biases and privileges, learning how acknowledging these can be a powerful tool for positive change in DEI initiatives. Learn active allyship and practice by discovering the seven key behaviors for effective allyship from Pornima's book, The Art of Active Allyship, and learn how to apply these principles in both personal and professional settings and learn some practical steps for personal growth in DEI, actionable steps individuals and organizations can take to foster a deeper understanding and practice of diversity, equity, and inclusion. But before we dive more deeply into this episode, in case you're new here, consider that I created the Thought Leadership Studio podcast to help listeners improve their thought leadership skills. So whether or not you consider yourself a thought leader at this point, consider that I've come to the conclusion that the practice of strategic thought leadership is now fundamental to effective marketing and helpful in any area of positive influence. It's about leading an audience to embrace a unique perspective that gives them more value. So this podcast is designed to provide an accelerated training process for which I use my expertise in design human engineering, neuro-linguistic programming, systems thinking, and game theory to create a condensed form of learning, and I recommend repeated listening for optimum empowerment. And an important part of this is having models of excellence for which I provide interviews of people who excel in one or more areas relevant to strategic thought leadership. And if you're listening on an app, make sure you visit the episode page on thoughtleadershipstudio.com. It's linked in the episode description for a summary of the episode with a curated transcript, a story and images, 
and additional resources and offers, such as the free marketer's guide to strategic thought leadership, free PDF guide, and a free 30-minute brainstorming or discovery session with me in which we can address your thought leadership specifically. In this episode of Thought Leadership Studio, I'm excited to host Dr. Pornima Luthra, a notable DEI expert and founder of TalentEd Consultancy. With over 15 years in DEI research, education, and practice, Dr. Luthra is globally recognized, including being named a top thinker by Thinkers 50. Her acclaimed book, The Art of Active Allyship, and regular Harvard Business Review contributions showcase her blend of academic and practical insights. Dr. Luthra discusses her journey as a woman of color in a male-dominated field, addressing biases and advocating a comprehensive approach to DEI. She emphasizes actionable steps for DEI advancement, leveraging her experience from keynotes, books, and workshops. Holding positions at Copenhagen Business School and Singapore Management University, Dr. Luthra has received multiple awards, including the 2021 Impact Award and the 2023 Nordic Blaze Inclusion Award. This conversation delves into DEI's complexities and practical integration into daily life and corporate culture. Dr. Luthra invites further engagement via LinkedIn, and I'll have a link to her LinkedIn page on the episode page thoughtleadershipstudio.com, linked to in the episode description. So without further ado, let's jump right into the interview. Thought Leadership Studio. I'm your host, Chris McNeil with Thought Leadership Studio, and I'm sitting here across the Atlantic Ocean with Pornima Luthra, who's a globally renowned expert in DEI, or diversity, equity, and inclusion. She's an associate professor at the Copenhagen Business School and is one of the Thinkers 50 of 2023, Well, and has a lot more to her background we'll, we'll talk about, I'm sure. Welcome, Pornima. Thank you so much, Chris. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you. So to introduce our audience to you and where you're coming from, what sets you on the path that you're on now with being at the forefront of the movement towards diversity, equity, and inclusion? And, and why is that path meaningful to you? Ah, that's such a great question. It takes me down memory lane, right? A little bit. Uh, um, I have what is known as a squiggly career. Um, so, you know, I started off with, uh, at the age of 18, needing to make a choice about what line of study I wanted to get into. And when you come from a South Asian background, there are really three choices available to you. You can either become a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. Um, I always wanted to study HR. I always had an interest in people and people's behaviors, but that was not seen to be a, a, a wise career choice, um, according to the people around me, my family. Um, and so thankfully I was good at math and science. Um, and so that naturally led me to doing 
an engineering degree. Um, and it was interesting during the engineering degree, I did all right, um, but I always enjoyed the cross-faculty courses that I did from the business school, understanding human behavior. And those were always the courses that I did really well in. So I think, um, you know, through that process, you know, while I did enjoy, you know, engineering, it was also some of the experiences that I had during that time that led me to move down the pathway of moving towards talent management and specifically with diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? So I was one of a handful of women in the engineering cohort I was a part of. Um, I was often the only woman um, and certainly only woman of color um, in the tutorial groups I was a part of. And so when I looked around me, there were not many of instructors. In fact, I don't think I had a single instructor who looked like me or who was female. And when I looked at the companies around me, the big companies that I aspired maybe to be a part of, when I looked at their leadership teams, again, there was no one who looked like me. And so it became quite clear to me that this was possibly not an industry that would welcome me into it, um, and certainly not that one that I could see myself growing in. And so I moved from there in what I call my squiggly career uh, towards HR and doing my doctorate, my PhD in that, that area. And it was during my PhD program that I really uh, came to understand more about the theoretical lenses around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that sparked off, of course, my interest within the area to get really get into it and begin my research in, in that space. But that's, of course, what I've talked to you about is my career and my academic background. But I do think that a lot of this was in me even as a child. If you ask my parents, my parents will tell you that from a very young age, I used to bring up and, and be confused about or ask questions about inequity and inequality that I saw around me. It would affect me very deeply whenever I had chances you know, to do some part-time work or voluntary work. I would always choose organizations where I could give back to those who are from underrepresented, marginalized, discriminated groups. And so I think it was in me a lot earlier, but of course, thankfully, um, through my squiggly career, I managed to find the pathway to actually being able to um, to, to make this more uh, more concrete. Um, and that's where really the path began with, with, with going down the journey of researching and teaching in the area of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah. Well, I love squiggly career paths. They give you a diversity of background, don't they? A diversity of perspectives. And exactly. isn't um, your mission about the value of a diversity of perspectives in a sense? Where does your mission So a few from? things. Yeah. So when I look at diversity, of course, diversity of thought is one part of it, but it's really thinking mm -hmm. about holistically about diversity, right? Really looking at diversity of backgrounds, of skills, of experiences, and thought is one part of that. So I'd like to think of it more holistically. And that's what I do in my first book, Diversifying Diversity, is really to get more on the table, to get companies to really think about, yes, the physical, physiological aspects, really thinking about um, the social and lifestyle aspects, but also the cognitive aspects. So all of it comes together to really looking at the intersectional um, thumbprint, diversity thumbprint that we all show up with. Um, and for me, that's really important that it's not just one aspect, it's all of these that add to the richness of experiences that people bring into the workplace, that they're able to look at 
issues and problems and challenges from multiple different perspectives. Um, and that's the value of this. So it's not just diversity of thought, it's also backgrounds, it's also experiences, it's also skills. It's the way, different ways in which we approach things. So there's a lot to it when it comes to, when we wanna embrace and if we wanna embrace diversity in its true sense. So we need to develop diversity and how we address diversity, kind of like meta diversity. That's why I call it diversifying diversity. Yeah, I love it. Exactly. So it's kind of a whole because we have we view. have a really exactly, and we have a very narrow view of diversity in our organizations because uh, we measure, uh, we love to measure, and what gets measured is what gets done, and that's the reality of the world that we live in, or the way that our companies are set up. And so, the metrics that we can track and trace, the visible dimensions, are the ones that we focus on. And if you're sitting in a part of the world like where I am in Copenhagen and Denmark in the in Europe, there is only literally gender and nationalities are the only two dimensions with data protection laws that you actually can track and trace which means that the scope of diversity becomes extremely narrow. Um, and these two are extremely important aspects of diversity, of course, gender, nationality, ethnicity, culture, race, they're all extremely important, but they don't exist in isolation. They intersect with so many other dimensions. And so when we look at diversity from a rather myopic lens, then we try to solve for something without really addressing those system structures, policies, practices that surround it. And then we're trying to solve for a very narrow view uh, without realizing that in doing so, we actually sometimes cause more harm um, than actually benefit because we're, we're trying to address one particular aspect. So I need to avoid these narrow points of view in addressing the situation, obviously. So if you could make any difference that you could, if you had a magic wand and you could wave it and create any difference you could with your teaching and your books and your speaking, how would the world be different? Oh, that's such a beautiful question. You know, I write at the end of my second book, The Art of Active Allyship, that I wish I was out of a job. And I don't know how many people can say that, right? I wish I lived in a world where someone like me and the work that I do is not necessary. So the world that I would love to see is one where there is true equity, where there's true inclusion, where people can show up to be their whole unique selves, be valued for it, be respected for it in all environments, in organizations, of course, where it's the large part of my work is, is focused on, but also in societal systems when it comes to education and healthcare and political systems and um, any other societal systems, right? Really thinking about every aspect of our lives where this idea of bias, discrimination, doesn't exist um, but of course that's an ideal sense and and you know I, I also write on the back of my first book diversifying diversity that if you have a brain you are biased so it, it's just the way our human brains function in many ways so you can't eliminate bias we can block it so I guess my vision and hope is that we block bias address discrimination ensure equity um, so that people are really valued for who they are and the uniqueness that they bring in. Um, and then there's true inclusion for all. So maybe you're bringing in what you might call or some might call a self-correcting feedback loop to compensate for the human mind's natural tendency to generalize and distort and delete information. Yeah, absolutely. And, absolutely. That, and it, we need to create more works. of that, right? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah and it, it is how the that. mind works. But also we need you know, people to notice these, these 
um, inequities that come as a result of this are there to wake us up. And that's a really powerful mission that you have. Thank you. What do you, what said, you yeah. well, if, if you could create systemic change in organizations and you talked about, and we were looking at how having the wrong measures or too few measures or only focusing on what can easily be measured can distort your view of the wonderful kaleidoscope of human capabilities we have around us. What would, what are the primary obstacles in thinking and organizational structure and a thinking that drives structure that you see as levers for change and making a difference there? Yeah. So I think there are a few challenges and I think the two that are most important for us to put on the table is bias. In, at the individual level, collective level, systemic, institutional level. And so we need to address this. And, and you've rightfully pointed out that, you know, we need to have systems in place and processes in place that help us to be able to block that bias. Because bias is there, it's not going anywhere. I think, uh, you know, as I often say in my keynotes, if anyone promises you that you can be de-biased or unbiased or any of those synonyms to that, um, that's false marketing. So mm -hmm. the human brain, you know, is naturally going to be biased. The mental shortcuts, heuristics, algorithms that we use are essential to how we process the vast amount of information coming our way. There's no running away from it. The question is, how do we ensure that we have the system structures, policies, and practices in place that will enable us to block that? And the reality, though, is the challenge is that in our organizations, they're set up to favor some and not others. Our systems, our structures, they've all been set up at a time that favors certain groups, the dominant groups in our organizations, and not others. So there is an inequity in the system itself. And so we need to reprogram in that way. We need to rebuild these systems and structures. And unfortunately, that requires a lot of effort, that requires resources, that requires commitment. And it's not something that happens overnight, right? It's not something that you can change in a year. It takes time. And so there needs to be consistent effort towards it. And there's no quick fix to this. And I think that is what I think a lot of organizations really struggle with. like you know, holding on to this, making sure you're committed, making sure that you're diverting resources for the long haul. So one aspect is bias. And that, of course, relates to, you know, what you said around structures and all of those things that need to be addressed. There is another one, which is kind of, if you ask me, the elephant in the room that we don't want to talk about, and that's fear. There's a lot of fear when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. There's a lot of fear that people have from both groups, from those who are well-represented and those who are underrepresented. Um, for the well-represented, it's the fear of saying and doing the wrong thing, not knowing uh, the vocabulary to have conversations around it. It's the fear of, is this going to make me in some ways lose my power and space that I have enjoyed occupying? Um, so there is a lot of fear for the well-represented, but there's also fear for the underrepresented being seen as the token, the tick box to satisfy the quota or the target, you know, um, the constant woke police or being labeled as the woke police, the one who is always addressing the discrimination at play and the fatigue that comes with it. And also the, the career, um, you know, impact on people's career off being perceived that way of constantly addressing bias and discrimination. So there's a lot of fear in this space. And I think that that is something, that's my current research actually, really unpacking that fear, really trying to understand what fear in DI really looks like, because we see resistance, we see 
lots of evidence, in fact, of resistance to DEI. And resistance comes from fear. And so it's unpacking that fear to really understand. Because if we get to the heart and the core of that, I fundamentally believe that if we're able to address the fear and talk about fear and make it all right, create the psychologically safe environments to have those conversations around fear, then I fundamentally believe that then we'll be able to make that shift and that change that we want to see because it is that resistance that's holding us back. I bet. And, you know, I want to loop back to uh, speak to those who are listening and resonate with their values around being successful and that this can help you succeed. This can help open yourself up to a, a kaleidoscope would be my metaphor of perspectives and capabilities and actions and all the things that you talk about in diversifying diversity um, that your organization wouldn't have access to without the opening of the minds. So I want to loop back to that. But before that, we're talking about fears. And, and in my world, fears are based on mental models, usually faulty ones. And you, you mentioned a few of those uh, um, on both sides. One is, you know, fear being perceived as a token on one side and the other is fear of losing power on the other side. And there's always a, you know, if then statement behind that. If there's more diversity, I'll lose power because I'm the dominant one now. Or if I get this advancement, then I'll be perceived as a token because there's an incentive for that. What would be some countering better belief systems that you would offer to remove the need for even having the fear in these situations. Yeah. And that's actually what I'm unpacking right now to see what are those, you know, what does it take to really address that? But what my research so far and um, the work that I've done so far, what it shows is, again, creating new mental models, right? So creating inclusive mindsets, shaping inclusive mindsets. That is core and key here. And of course, that means that we need to be able to rewire in that sense or create new neural uh, pathways in our brain around what inclusion looks like and how do we show up to be an inclusive person. And inclusion is one of those terms that is um, that is fundamental to this, but it's also one that's quite difficult to understand what does it take from me to be inclusive? And the question that often comes up is what can I do? What can I really do to nurture those inclusive spaces? And that is, of course, a reflection of these inclusive mindsets, inclusive mental models. And so part of my work is really helping, uh, or one aspect of my work is really helping individuals feel empowered to shift their mindsets and to exercise that part of, or develop in fact that muscle, because not sometimes we don't even, we may not necessarily have it um, developed well enough to be able to use it uh, when needed. And so it's about developing it, um, strengthening it and making sure that it's a muscle, it's a mental model, it's a muscle that comes into play the minute we notice discrimination, the minute we notice that we can be uh, more inclusive to someone from an underrepresented group, underrecognized uh, group. And so that is a big part of what I do around allyship, right? Really empowering individuals with the behaviors that they need to be able to shift their mindset towards being inclusive. Um, so that's what I think it will take uh, fundamentally underlining it um, to be able to overcome that fear. 
but first we also need to understand that fear a bit more i think i think there's more work to be done in that space to say well what does that fear look like and if we can put words to it then we address the elephant in the room that no one wants to talk about um because right now it's all good to talk about inclusion it's all good to talk about active allyship and i do that that's part very much a part of my work and the basis of of, of my first two books but there's also a need for us to move one step further to actually addressing the root cause of it, um, which is which is at the end of the day fear. Well, sure. And certainly if there's a new better belief system, then acting in accordance with that is one way to build those neurological pathways and get some practice. Like you said, like a muscle training, a muscle is going to respond to training. It's not going to respond to one workout and going back and eating ice cream. You have to do it consistently and being conscious. Like you said, being conscious of the fear, being conscious of what's behind the fear. And that there is a path from there that can benefit you, benefit your organization and benefit the world at large. So tell us about those benefits. What would that do for the world if it could grow into this vision that you have? Yeah. See, the thing is, I, you know, there's a misconception with diversity, equity, inclusion, that it's a zero-sum game, that it's somehow pizza or a pie, that if you, you know, give an opportunity to someone from an underrepresented group, it somehow takes away from the majority. And I think that's a very false way of looking at it. And that's the problem and the challenge when we have quotas and targets in place, because that creates an environment where it pits one group against another. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't actually benefit um, the people uh, within the organization, but also more widely society as a whole. So if we were to do diversity, inclu equity, inclusion right, and really address the system structures, policies, practices, really address the bias in ourselves. And if we assume that everyone you know, does this and moves on down this pathway, then the benefits are for everybody. The benefits are not just for the underrepresented. They really benefit everyone. And if we just look at binary gender identities, right? So much of the work that we do in our organization is focused on uplifting women, making sure that there are adequate representation of women at various levels in the organization. And we assume, and a lot of men do assume, um, because of the nature in which it's communicated, because of these quotas and targets, that they are then at the losing end, I put that in quotation marks, losing end of this um, this journey of DI. But the reality is that if DI is done right, it also challenges the toxic masculine frameworks that we have or, and normative behaviors that we expect men to conform to. Um, and if we do it right, it actually creates space for men to show up as they want to show up you know, with being a father, um, leaving early to pick up your children, to uh, taking shared parental leave. Um, so many of these things, I think men don't do or feel that they can't do uh, because of these societal expectations that we have. So even when we look at binary gender identities, the one aspect that's focused on everywhere in the world, um, even there, if we adopt the right view around DI, there's benefits for everyone. So you asked me what the benefits are, and I like to look at benefits from more of an equity lens. I know there's so much work around the business case, and it's well established, so I'm not even going to go down that pathway from the financial benefits, but I'd like to look at it from the equity lens. Like, What does it do for us as individuals in the organization? It creates that environment where we can show up as ourselves, we can thrive in that environment, which means our job satisfaction 
production goes up, turnover goes down. We're feeling that we are a part of that sense of belonging and inclusion, which means that all those lovely organizational citizenship behaviors that we'd like to see in our organizations really blossom, right? And so we see these wonderful impact, a wonderful positive impact on employee well-being at the individual level, but then we see some lovely impacts at the team level, where we see teams working better, where we see teams coming up with solutions to difficult challenges, problems that we live in the world that we live in today from creative ways that are innovative, that are uh, radical in many ways. It could be incremental as ways, but it's also things that we haven't done before because we haven't thought about it from that perspective because we have that representation within our team. So at the team level, there's certainly better decision-making, uh, but also that level, those levels of creativity and innovation that are required in the world that we live in. And at the end of the day, if we look more societally, our organizations then represent society more equitably. That means it's all stages of the of or levels rather of the organization. We should be able to see the representation that we see in the societies in which we're represented in. Uh, we should be able to see in our organizations representation of the customers that we serve as well. And so that representation really, and not just at the base levels of the organization, because sometimes it can be mistaken. Yes, we have this representation of all these different groups, but when you look into the data, the data shows you that the representation is at the base levels of the organization. And what I'm saying here is that needs to be there through and through, right to the very top, mm -hmm. to the board uh, of the organizations, right? So this is what... Benef the benefits look like uh, beyond the financial benefits. And of course, there's plenty of you know, evidence that shows that there's also financial benefits of, uh, of having this levels, uh, these levels of representation. Well, a happier workforce. I mean, naturally that leads to better customer service. And one thing I'm getting is there's, there's kind of a guiding principle of acceptance and guide questioning our own filters our own belief systems, being willing to step out of those. And I can speak uh, as a musician to the value of diversity in music. One of my favorite bands combines a neoclassical bass player with a bluegrass guitarist, another rock guitarist, a couple people from jazz, but they're an improvisational band that have learned to harmonize all these different perspectives together. And the whole is so much greater than if they were all coming from the same musical background. It's very oh, distinctive and unique yeah. as a result of that. So as a, a foundation for creativity, it just seems like open-mindedness and questioning the beliefs that inhibit open-mindedness is a prerequisite for creativity, isn't it? Absolutely, it is. I mean, how can we be as creative as we'd like to be if we don't have those different perspectives? But there's a caveat here. So there's enough research that shows us that it's not just diversity that is needed. You also need an inclusive culture. Diversity on its own doesn't always lead to those wonderful benefit benefits at the individual team and societal organizational levels. So the fundamental um, component here, if you'd like, between diversity and those benefits is actually a climate or a culture of inclusion. And it's in those kind of environments that we see some really nice uh, results, right? We see increases in our improvement in decision-making, but we also see about a 58% increase in idea generation, creativity, and innovation as well. So 
but there is a caveat there because it's not just about pu putting people who are different together and then just going back chris to your example of the of the band right it's not just about putting people together they also need to use the word harmonize they need to come together to understand each other to understand the contributions that each make and to make those contributions in a way that adds you know it's not one plus one equals two but one plus one equals uh, a much bigger number right um and that's the that's where the culture of inclusion comes in i could see that and, and to me what i'm saying is it's like try and remember who said you can't really understand your own mind until you travel to a completely different culture mm. yeah and, and uh, the the benefits of opening up to questioning your own mental patterns in general i mean there's but how would you, for those who might be listening, thinking, okay, how does this practically apply? What would be practical steps that someone could take even just within the circles of their own personal life or in the broader circles of their organization life if they're leading an organization um, to begin to put this into practice and make a difference? Yeah. So I think there are a few things. Um, in my second book, The Art of Active Allyship, I really look at the seven behaviors that are needed for us to move the needle further uh, when it comes to nurturing those inclusive mindsets. And for me, it starts with a few things at the individual level. So we can't show up to be an ally and to nurture inclusion until we do some self-work. And the self-work starts with deep curiosity really having that deep curiosity about someone who's different from ourselves or has a different life journey from us. Where are they coming from? What has influenced them? Why are they reacting in this way? Having that deep curiosity to try to understand, to assume the best of people um, and to be able to say, all right, you know, where are they coming from? What is that life, that lens through which they're looking at this situation? And it's not always about asking people to explain themselves because that can be quite triggering um, for, for some folks, right? And it depends on the background and the experiences that you have. But today we live in a world where there's such a wealth of information out there, right? When I started doing my PhD, there was hardly anything written in you know, more accessible spaces around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Most of it was behind a paywall with scholarly journals and articles. And fine, I was doing my PhD, I had access to it. But if you didn't have access to it, you actually couldn't read up on it. And it was always written in a language in a, in a way that made it also inaccessible. So we ha live in a world today where we can read up. You brought up cultures in different parts of the world. There's so much literature that we can explore to understand how someone different from us, how do they live a different life? But fundamentally to deep curiosity, we also need to come from a space of non-judgment that we don't think of ourselves and our lifestyle and our culture as being any superior to um, another. And that deep curiosity comes from that space of non-judgment and not looking at ourselves as being superior than. Um, and so it starts with that. For me, deep curiosity is super, super important, right? Because it's, it's, it's the inquisitive mind that will start firing off those neurons and those new patterns. So for me, that's where it begins. And then of course, it's about honest introspection because we do need to spend some time with ourselves being very honest about where our biases lie. And that requires some hard work. It requires us first to understand what, what 
types of bias are out there because we may not know it. And a lot of our biases, of course, unconscious, we're neither aware of it, neither do we have control over it. And so we need to start becoming first aware of what are the different forms of biases and start noticing those patterns in us, in our interactions with others, but also in the decisions that we take in our organizations as well. So when we're promoting someone, when we're looking at a set of candidates, when we're looking at who we're going to hire, uh, looking at our performance uh, reviews as well, being able to spot those biases that are at play that favor some groups and not others. When we start seeing the patterns around us about who is constantly getting promoted or what types of identities are getting promoted, mm -hmm. those are the kind of you know, honest introspection that we need to be having. So pattern identification is super important over there. Um, you know, and, and we learned this in math, right? Looking through patterns and trying to find those common things through sets of numbers. And that's what we need to do around us with people and say, all right, what are these commonalities and who's missing out? Whose perspective is not at this table? Um, so for me, honest introspection is the second one. And then the third one for me at the individual level is really this humble acknowledgement that I don't know. I actually don't know how someone who's different from me experiences the world around me. I assume it, and most human beings view and make an assumption that people experience the world around them in the very same ways they do, right? And if I can't see it, then it must be something that isn't happening, right? And that is really where... Um, that wonderful P word privilege comes into the picture, right? So it's really humble acknowledgement is about acknowledging our privilege. And unfortunately, this is a word that is, uh, you know, when I use the word privilege, I can see the room when I do keynotes get uncomfortable with it, right? It is one of those words that is, um, that has been associated with shame and guilt. And it evokes those feelings in people as well, that I should be guilty about who I am. I should be guilty about these advantages that just that I have. I'd love for people to reframe that and to rethink that, right? And and I say this in all my keynotes that, you know, if only we could reframe privilege to think of it as, as an advantage, as a superpower that we have, that we can use to actually shift and challenge the systems of oppression, of discrimination around us to really lift people from underrepresented, marginalized and discriminated groups. So we need to reframe privilege to use it as something positive um, that we can, we can use to be able to lift others. And for those of us who have privilege, privilege comes from so many different aspects. And for those of us who have privilege, that is a responsibility that we need to take on to be able to challenge and shift the environment around us. You're, and so I'd say it would start with those three, you know, yeah. Well, just going to say that you, you speak um, very eloquently and your thoughts are so well organized. When I start to articulate a question, you answer it before I can even voice it. <laughs> that's, that's very powerful. I was about to ask you, uh, what can we do? What kind of questions can we ask? And you answered that. And it's like, well, it's just, and obviously, uh, did you find writing these books helped you organize your thinking that well so that you can be so articulate yeah. and in depth in discussing a subject? Thank you so much. I mean, that's uh, that's very kind of you to say. Someone the other day I was chatting with said, oh, yeah, but of course you have an engineering background. That's why you're so organized with your thoughts. And I thought, oh, gosh, don't put me into a box, right? Because, uh, you know, we, we also need engineers who think differently in different ways as well. So we don't want to put people into boxes. Um, I think writing a book 
you have to be organized with the way you look at things and you have to be very structured in how you approach it because you have to look at it from the perspective of the reader, right? The reader is someone who wants to know and understand. They may not necessarily have the breadth and depth of understanding in various different areas that the, that the author might have. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore you need to walk them through it. So for me, it's always the red thread. I don't know why it's red, but it could be pink, purple, orange, doesn't matter. Nothing but a thread, <laughs> nothing wrong with red, but red thread going through it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, what is it that I'm leading the, the, the reader through that builds and scaffolds understanding, right? Um, so for me, that's super important. Um, and that, and through that, of course, then I need to make sure that my thoughts are well-organized and uh, well-communicated as well. So if you're leading them through it, I guess that implies a hierarchical organization of principles and thoughts so that they build on it, you get the base. Building on, I'm up. not sure if I would say hierarchical because I'd like to think of all of them as being important, but they need to scaffold on each other. Sure. Um, so they need to build on each other um, starting with the, you know, for me, deep curiosity is where it should begin. And then it moves from there, each one building on the other um, in that way. I wouldn't necessarily say one is more important than the other. I sometimes get asked that question, you know, out of the seven behaviors, um, I've only, of course, taken you three to three uh, through three of them until now. Um, but, uh, yeah. you know, it's not to say that one is more important than the other, but that they in some ways need to build on each other so that at the end of it, you have those neural pathways that have sure. formed and the muscle is built and you have that inclusive mindset. And the reader has bite-sized chunks of information that they can assimilate exactly. at one time. And I, I bring this up because uh, as a podcast called Thought Leadership Studio, we attract a lot of authors and those who want to be authors to promote their thought leadership. So the journey of writing is always very interesting to me. And I, I can't help but reflect on a lot of what you're saying about the need for curiosity, humility, questioning your own beliefs. It's like a path to spiritual growth or a path to personal growth, however you would frame that. And that's something yeah. that's of value to anyone in any situation. Absolutely. So it's interesting you bring this up. I, I personally am, am, you know, someone who uh, adopts a spiritual way of living, um, very mm -hmm. influenced, of course, by Hindu spirituality and my parents. And um, and so I see a lot of this in in many of the spiritual principles, right, around oneness and seeing that oneness in everyone um, and, and seeing that energy um, and wanting that kind of equity and wanting that equity and equality for, for everybody. Um, so there is a lot of that spiritual grounding within the work that I do, um, mm -hmm. but then also very much influenced by uh, and grounded in research, right, uh, that is out there and the research that I do. Well, sure. It was like the two wings and a bird. The bird needs both the, yeah. the heart of the spirituality and the wing of logic on one side to fly. It takes both. This has been fascinating. And um, for the listener, I'm going to link to all of Purnima's um, books and her website and the episode page, which is linked to in the episode description. If you're listening on her app, please check it out. Uh, but for our listeners, what would be the two things? The first thing is, what would be the top three things that you'd recommend they do to go further along this path? Um, and secondly, if, if someone 
wanted to reach out to you for a speaking event or something like that, or a link to the books there too, but how would they find your, you and your information? Okay. So in terms of three things that we can all do, I think three easy things. Number one, every week make a commitment to reading an article, listening to a podcast, um, reading a chapter of a book, perhaps, uh, or listening to an audiobook these days, um, that is in a space related to diversity, equity, and inclusion, but something that you didn't know before. Right. And that's something I do personally myself. So I'm, it's it's something that I believe adds a lot of value to myself. Um, so I'm sharing that, um, you know, with, with your listeners as well. So make a commitment every week to read one thing and reflect on it. Take that time to reflect on it through the week. Um, the second thing I would say is to follow people who inspire you on this topic. Right. I think there's a lot of great thought leaders out there, um, whether it's on I'm I'm most active on LinkedIn, but it's you know I follow a whole lot of people in this space, but also in other spaces as well. I think there's a lot to learn from what people are doing in different spaces, different industries, different ways of thinking. I think that adds and inspires actually quite a lot of uh, my own thinking as well, or the way I choose to communicate. So follow someone who can inspire you on a more regular basis as well. Um, and the third thing is I would encourage you, if you're part of an organization, join an employee resource group uh, within your organization as an ally to support people who are different from yourself. So really stretch yourself and become part of an ERG uh, and be that ally for people who are different from you. But when joining an ERG, it's not about going in there and saying, all right, here I am. Um, make, making ourselves the center of attention and, and centering ourselves, that's not it. Show up with humility, listen without providing those solutions, reflect deeply, take that away and start making change within your own spheres of influence um, without necessarily providing those solutions up front then and there, right, within those ERGs. It's about reflecting, understanding, really listening, Right, to what people are saying, and then going back to our own spaces and seeing, all right, how do I challenge these, these systems and structures around me so that they benefit everybody? Um, and that's uh, those would be me, my top three things that we can all do. Um, and then, of course, you asked about where listeners can get in touch with me. Um, LinkedIn is really the only platform, as I said, that where I'm the most active, uh, certainly in the DEI space. So please do connect with me there. I always love to hear from people and also to hear what resonated with you, what challenges you're facing, but also ideas that you have, something that worked in your organization. I would absolutely love to hear it. And if you have any thoughts around fear in DI that will uh, you know, maybe have an influence on my current research, I'd love to, love to hear from you as well. Excellent. Well, this has been very enlightening and inspiring and mind-opening. I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me and our audience. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Have a great rest of your day, Pornina. You too. Thought Leadership Studio.
Hey there, again, I'm Chris McNeil. I hope you enjoyed this fascinating interview with Dr. Pornima Luthra, where we touched into topics like the squiggly path, diversifying diversity, the complexity of bias in organizational structures, and transforming fear into inclusive mindsets. And if you're listening on an app, make sure you jump on the episode page on thoughtleadershipstudio.com. It is linked to in the episode description. It includes links to Dr. Pornima's resources and social media. Also includes a link to get the free Marketer's Guide to Strategic Thought Leadership to help you with the building blocks of your own strategic thought leadership. Again, I'm Chris McNeil, Strategic Thought Leadership, coach and consultant, founder of Thought and Fifth Level Web, and developer of the thought process of strategic thought leadership. Appreciate you listening and look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Thought Leadership Studio. Thank mm-hmm. you.